Have you ever wondered why anyone drinks Malort? Or if there are actually lobsters in the Chicago River? Then listen to the Curious City podcast, where we answer all your questions about Chicago and the region. WBEZ's Curious City is part of the NPR network and available wherever you find your podcasts. What's up, Chicago? I'm Erin Allen, and this is The Rundown. So recently, somebody suggested that I talk to this Chicagoan named Andrew Davis on the show. Now, I love watching movies, but I'm not really a cinephile, so I don't always know directors' names. But it turns out I know a lot of Andrew Davis's films. He directed The Fugitive to critical acclaim, Holes, A Perfect Murder, Above the Law. Like, this dude has been in my media life, and probably yours too, for years, and I didn't even realize it. So clearly I had to talk to him. And this is a big year for Andrew. It's the 30th anniversary of The Fugitive and the 20th anniversary of Holes. But we're here to talk about the anniversary of another film, his first film, Stony Island. It debuted 45 years ago, and this is probably the most Chicago film I've ever seen. For one, it's set on the south side where he's from. I was born at a hospital on the west side, uh, and then I lived until I was eight years old in Rogers Park on the north side. And then the rest of my growing up years, I was living in an area called Jeffrey Manor, South Chicago, South Deering, on the far south side by the steel mills. And back then, you probably wouldn't have thought he would grow up to be a director of countless blockbusters. For one thing, he didn't really watch a lot of fictional TV or films growing up. What I remember doing when I was a young kid taking care of my brother who Richie who's the lead in Stony Island I would watch the big picture they were army navy documentaries about World War II about Korea I was into reality I wasn't into fantasy so it makes sense that Andy's first film was so inspired by his actual life Stony Island is a musical drama about a couple of friends who are musicians living on the south side and they're doing their best to put a band together and break the rue in the music world. This movie has so much music just deeply embedded. And it's the perfect presentation of that Chicago grit, hope, hustle, and unquestionable talent. And there's a little Southern twang mixed in there too, in the best way. But let's back up a little bit. You should know that Andy has made more movies in Chicago than most, if not all Hollywood directors. So we started with why he brings so many of his films to his hometown. You know, the other films I've done have not been in cities. Mm. You know, Holes was in the desert. The Guardian was at sea. You know, Collateral Damage was in South America. But most of the other cities that had to take place in a city, I fought for or was able to bring to Chicago. Because I understood the city. I understood how to get around, what the logistics would be just in terms of production. Yeah. And I understood the fabric of how to get something to look tough or look slick or look classy or where to find unique kind of places that we could work. Yeah. Nice nice buzzwords to describe Chicago. Slick, tough. Classy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You have directed close to the most, if not the most, films set in Chicago. Why do your films often come back home? When you said you're always trying to fight for them to to come here. Say more about that, that motivation. Well, 
because it's easy. It was easy for me to work here. We had, you know, after we made a couple of hits here, the city was very happy to have a new industry. Mm. You know, do you I, feel like I, do you feel like Stony Island and some of your earlier films were like a, an ushering in of that? Oh yeah, oh, yeah. Code of Silence was an important movie for Chicago. Mm-hmm. You know. Because it had local crews. Dennis Farina was still a cop when he was in the movie. He became a very respected actor. Who was, he was an actor, but also he was working as a cop. And so it had a, a base of talent that was both behind and in front of the camera. And the city was, was working hard to give cooperation to help people get things done. You know, Mayor Daley didn't want to have anybody do a movie that had any kind of reference to gangsters or shootings or anything like that, right? <laughs> Which I understood he wanted to keep the reputation going. But once he died, it sort of opened up a bit so people could come here. But it was really uh, The Fugitive, I think, that opened up the doors to big movies coming here like mm. Batman and, and uh, Transformers and more. So... Um, you know, I, I just felt it was the best back lot I could have. Yeah. You know, the, I love the architecture. I love the people. And it was home. You know, my, if my kids were with me, they could be with their grandparents and my brother was here. Aww. You know, so it, it, it was, why not be home? Yeah, yeah, why not? Um, do, you, do you feel like you're just like, I mean, there's like you've got three films that are like having these anniversaries this year. I feel like are you are you just like celebrating all year? Like, what? <laughs> do you feel like you're like in this festive 2023? Well, I just feel very lucky that people uh, are interested in, in these films that sort of live on, yeah. you know. Um, Holes, works, Holes just continues to be a family favorite of, of people. Uh, the Fugitive is seen around the world every day, all the time. It's constantly playing. And now the, this Blu-ray 4K, it actually would look better than it would look in any theater. I and mean, there's more information oh. that's now available on that Blu-ray than you can see in the theater. And Stony Island, which is which is now sort of coming out of hibernation, because for a lot of reasons it got buried, mm. and for the wrong reasons it got buried, mm. because of race, because of uh, not having a, a big marketing campaign behind it. And I think now kids, if, if, if they find out about this movie, can share it with each other and tell each other about it, will be very, very happy, because... The music's very hip. The kids are beautiful. You know, this is Ray Don Chong and Susanna Hoffs before they were un- they were known. Yes. My, my brother and George Anglin Jr. and Stoney Robinson's like a young James Brown. You know. Yeah. And so it's it and then and then it's got a very heartwarming story about a, a Gene Barge, this incredible mentor. You know, Gene Barge's rhythm section. When I met him before he he started on Stony Island when he worked at Chess Records it was Donnie Hathaway and Maurice White who started Earth Wind and Fire. Mm. You know, they they played in his rhythm section. Wow. And Minnie Ripperton sang backup. Oh my goodness. So it, he has an incredible history and you know Gene is known as Gene Daddy G Barge. In a quarter to 3 school is out, play it Daddy G. That's Gene playing the sax solos. Wow. Um yeah, let's let's talk about Stony Island. Um it's your first film. Lots, as you said, of beautiful music came out 45 years ago, 1978. It's about the South Side. Some blues musicians pairing up with a saxophone legend to make their music debut. There's grief. There's hope, love, family, grit, hustling. Very Chicago. Um, one thing I really loved about it is that I had all these moments where I'm like, this is so authentic. I don't even think they're acting, <laughs> you know, in this moment. Like, like somebody slips down the stairs on the CTA and like it's, it's all the Chicago accents. 
the singing, the performing, it feels so authentic. Talk about bringing that into the film, that authenticity. I didn't have to bring it. I just, I just recorded it. These were these were real musicians. These are real kids struggling. Yeah. You know, I didn't have to tell them. Now you have to learn to be a struggling musician. <laughs> and so Richie and Stoney. So my parents lived in, the, in in this neighborhood that was changing radically. They were redlining it. They were trying to scare away white homeowners that they should leave because blacks were moving in. My parents didn't leave. They stayed. And Richie grew up in a black neighborhood. And as the kid down the block was Stoney Robinson, and they became friends. And they jammed together, and they played in basements in the neighborhood. And I thought this would be an interesting movie because I had seen Mean Streets and I had seen uh, American Graffiti by Lucas and, and Scorsese. I said, I'm going to make a movie about where I grew up. Yes. And, and then, you know, I, I pulled Richie out of college. You know, he, he could have been a doctor. And, and, and he, he got very serious and spent a lot of time, you know, woodshedding, learning how to play the guitar. And, and he was into, you know, fusion and blues and jazz and soul. And uh, then he met these real musicians. And he talks about how being in Stony Island really put him within, in, 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 a, in, a, in an environment where he could really understand what it meant to be a musician and play mm. with somebody. So that's how the music evolved. We, we wrote some original music for, this, for the movie in two weeks. And Ray Don Chong wrote a song with Susanna Hoffs. And I brought a guy named Ronnie Barron up from New Orleans who, who, who I thought was black when I heard him. You know, he was in Paul Butterfield's album. And he hung out with Little Richard uh, with Dr. John when he was a kid. That so, is no surprise. So it's, a, it's the yeah. same story. It was white kids learning this culture from black musicians and giving it back. And then black kids learning it again from white musicians. It's like what happened with Hendrix. He went to London, you know, and, and Chess had all these British guys come over here because they heard music from Chicago. Mm. Um, so there is this funeral scene, right, with a very traditional Mardi Gras processional. Where did the New Orleans storyline come from? How did that come into Stony Island here? Well, well, first of all, you know, there's a documentary I want everybody, to, <clears throat> excuse me, to see called The Making of Stony Island. And it's on my website for free, the andrewdavisfilms.com. And Quincy Jones talks about the music coming up from Louisiana, mm. coming up from Mississippi. In Alabama, the Mississippi River brought Louis Armstrong, literally got off on 63rd and Stony Island, where he got off the Illinois Central train when he came to Chicago. So that culture came up, mm. and it became part of who the, all the blues guys who came yeah. up, you know? So, and early jazz in Chicago with Bix Beiderbeck and all that stuff, it was part of it. So New Orleans had a tremendous influence on, on music in the world, and especially in Chicago. The Fugitive was adapted from a show. Holes was adapted from a book. Stony Island, though, was an original. Do you have like a preference between adapting versus starting from scratch? Well, if somebody gives you a great great story, it's better not to have to make it up yourself. But True. <laughs> Stony Island was was original only in the sense that it was it was, it was our it was our stories, my brother and I, my story, and um, it was also the story of other people. You know, Paul Butterfield and uh, Siegel Schwal and Mike Bloomfield. There are a lot of young Chicago musicians who fell in love with black music and made it their own. Mm. And so that was the story I wanted to tell about culture being passed from one generation to another. Mm -hmm. 
But I'm, I just wrote a novel that's being published uh, next summer called Disturbing the Bones, which is a story that involves a Chicago policeman who lost his mother when he was 14 and finds out that her body was recovered in Cairo, Illinois. And he's got to investigate what happened in an archaeological site. And it becomes a big political global thriller. And so I hope people get to read that book. It's going to be coming. I work with a wonderful writer named Jeff Biggers. And it's, it's, it's coming out uh, next, next summer. All right. That's exciting. I did see that you were, you were writing that book. Uh, yeah, and it just kind of makes me think, you know, the, the saying goes, if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. But does that mean you also never retire? Like, <laughs> you're, you just wrote a book. I mean, you know, you, you, it's kind of like a, a, I don't know, for me and as a consumer, it seems like a new, a new thing for you. But. Well, it, actually, it started as a screenplay. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> and, and I thought, I, I, I want to put all this stuff in there. I'm not going to have room in, in a screenplay. So I better uh, write a novel first and then trim it down. Yeah. So the challenge is to finish, get, finish the, the novel and then figure out how to turn it into a – I'd rather it be a movie than a series, but it may have to be a series. Okay. Okay. All right. So not totally new. Also not retiring. <laughs> well, people say, Andy, why don't you just relax? You know, just take it easy. But I think, you know – it's it's a conflict because some days I, I wish I said I didn't need to go sit in front of a computer or work deal. I love the collaboration working with other creative people. Mm-hmm. That, that's that's a joy. Yes. But sometimes you just have to find the balance. You know, the the new sitting is the new smoking. We're always in front of our computers and our, <laughs> our phones and stuff, and, that, and that's a bit too much. Yeah. Um, you know, I do want to ask you a follow up to something you said earlier, which is that Stony Island got buried. And I wonder if you can talk about that a little bit. Well, in, in the making of Stony Island, that documentary, it talks about it. So the film opened to incredible reviews, and the best reviews I've ever had yeah. by the major critics in this country. And it started playing in theaters, and Chicago was playing in about 10 different theaters. And black kids started going into white neighborhoods to see it. Mm. And in those days, the white theater owners was going, oh, boy, we got black kids coming in the neighborhood they're going to scare away the white trade. They won't come to the theater anymore. And they pulled the picture. And they re- and so the distributor renamed the movie My Main Man from Stony Island. And they made it, tried to make it into a black exploitation film, which it wasn't. No. And, uh, and there's, it's all in this documentary. So, so racism played a role in suppressing a movie which is about race not mattering. So, so think, but so you yeah, remember in 1978, there were hardly any black people on television. Huh. You know, it, it, black people were invisible. And one of, the, one of the touching things that happened to me in my life is Barack Obama called me in 2008. And I said, what are you calling me for? <laughs> and, he, and he said, when, I, when you were making The Fugitive, I remember all those trucks around the University of Chicago. We were shooting the Harrison being a doctor. And he was an organizer at Altgeld Gardens on the far south side where my high school team, Bowen, played against Cassie Russell, against Carver High School. And, uh, you know, I, I was, you know he, he, he just he was trying to reach out to Hollywood and get some attention from people. But, you know, I said to him, I said, I hope you can determine what the message is and not the press. Mm. And luckily he did. You know, and now we're now we're facing another battle. Mm. I want kids to I want the kids to go and vote. I want kids to stand up for their rights and to, and to, and to make a future for my grandchildren. Yeah. To the public, you've been 
the guy who directed The Fugitive, the guy who directed Holes, the guy who directed this and that. And I wonder if I ask one of your good friends to fill in the blank, the guy who, what do you think they would say? Oh, well, I don't know. I don't, I'll give you their phone numbers. You can call them. <laughs> I mean, they're proud of me. You know, they're proud of me. <clears throat> um, they think I haven't changed much. I'm still a real person. I'm not arrogant. I don't have <clears throat> fancy cars and all that kind of stuff. Um, I've just been very lucky, you know. <clears throat> I wish I didn't have this this horse throat today. Oh. <clears throat> um, my friends would say that uh, he's pretty much the guy he was when he was young. Andrew Davis, this has been great. Thank you so much. Nice meeting you. Thank you so much. And that's it for today. Thank you to Justin Bull and Sarah Stark for producing The Rundown and to Ariel Van Clee for editing the show. Brendan Banizak is our executive producer and Ethan Schwab was the engineer for this episode. Our theme music is by Louis Weeks. The Rundown is produced by WBEZ Chicago and is a part of the NPR Network. If you love the show, please rate us, review us. It helps more people find the show. I'm Erin Allen. Thank you for listening. I'll talk to you later. <laughs>